You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. We had a principal who was a bit of a tearaway, and uh, he developed his own mathematics program um, back in the days where you didn't have to do what the state told you to do, right? Remember that time? Before your time. All right, so we, we had our own maths thing, which didn't help me at all. But he also insisted that everyone, every student uh, from grade three through to grade six had to do uh, public speaking every week. Um, so you, as from little kids, we had to learn how to speak publicly. And one of the rules that we learned from the beginning is that you never, ever begin a speech with an apology. It just ruins your argument from the beginning. It gets people off on the wrong foot. So I'm sorry, but I'm starting this morning with an apology. Um, You might know that we've been going through the book of Exodus. You might also know that last week we said we're going to take three weeks out of Exodus and we're going to talk about these three symbols. If you've picked up this booklet that we gave you on the uh, launch of our new name, um, then you'll know that we were talking about these three symbols. And one of the things we've been emphatic about is that having a new name doesn't mean we're a new church. Um, we're, we're not trying to say that we're suddenly this different organization. Actually, what we wanted to do with a new name was just really um, emphasize who we already are and sort of align our name with the people that we are. And so... Um, It did give us an opportunity, though, just to sharpen our focus a little bit. And so, uh, along with the red door, which is the kind of the key symbol representing Jesus' sacrifice for us, we added these further three symbols, which were meant to act as kind of points on a compass that would um, keep us on track with our mission, which is to be a community of people, helping people make all of life all about Jesus. And so, we have these three symbols, and Uh, They're meant to represent sort of the three key areas that we operate in. And so if you are here last week, you would have heard a great sermon from Simon talking about the shared table, this circle symbol. And uh, that's all about our ministry of hospitality. And it's it's kind of the focus is quite inward in that area of our ministry where we want to focus on loving one another in the body of Christ here, uh, opening our homes and our tables to one another, sharing food and sharing our lives. Next week, we're going to get to the square, the public square. Um, the, the square has always been a symbol of public life. In fact, the shopping centre over there is called CS Square. It's meant to be the kind of the place where people meet in this area. And so the square represents our public ministry, our ministry to those outside of the church. And we're going to be really working hard in the next 12 months on developing more of a ministry to the community around us. We'll get to that next week. The symbol in the middle, which kind of is in the middle because it's, it's sort of at the kind of, I guess, the peak of our experience of, um, of life together, um, is, is representative of our corporate worship. And up until the beginning of this week, it was symbolized by a, I think that's called a trapezoid. Um, I'm happy to be corrected. I, I, I officially got a D minus in... Uh, VCE math. So I think, and I know you're meant to learn that in grade three, but I, I think it's a trapezoid. Um, and it's representative, uh, in this case, of a pulpit. Now, there's a couple of problems with this symbol, um, and here's the reasons why I've changed it um, and instantly invalidated all this stuff we paid to print, all right? Um, like most good ideas, this was not an original one. Um, the, the, the kind of table pulpit square idea is outlined in this book um, by a guy named Joe Thorne. He is a, a pastor in the States, and, um, uh, and he wrote this, these three little books on the church. Um, uh, we like to call them booklets because that annoys him. Um, but they're, they are, they're legitimate books. I think they're over 100 pages, so we can call it a book. This one is called The Life of the Church. The byline on it is the table, pulpit, and square. And in this book, he kind of outlines, here are the three areas in which the church should be doing ministry. The problem with having the pulpit as the symbol is twofold. On the surface, it's just harder for you to get your head around a trapezoid than it is for you to get your head around a circle or a square. It's just a 
people don't know that symbol so well or that shape. And what we want in making these symbols part of the way that we speak, we want you to be able to say to your buddy at morning tea at work or at recess at school or whatever, we want you to be able to sketch out real quick, here's what our church is about. Here are three shapes and here's what they represent. That's kind of what we do. So it's more difficult to get your head around that shape, but much more importantly and deeper than that is the fact that although we really believe in pulpit, in the pulpit, right? We really believe in Bible teaching. I think we would be comfortable to say that it's the sort of the peak of our gathered experience. Like it's, it's something we would never want to get rid of. You'll never have a Sunday here where there's no sermon. Um, gathered worship is about more than just that. And I've been part of churches where that was the main thing. I've been part of churches, really a lot of my training was done in a church where people would come half an hour late so they could get to the start of the sermon and then leave after the sermon. And it was brutal. I I never want that to happen here, ever. Um, So having a symbol of a pulpit just isn't that helpful. And I don't want to be too critical of it because Joe Thorne, the guy who wrote this book, looks like this. All right, so more tattoos than me, less hair, um, more facial hair. Uh, So I just, you know, I I don't want to... I don't want to cause any trouble. Um, and uh, and I've, I've had the privilege of meeting this guy a couple of times. He's a great guy. And, I, and the book is a great book. And the idea is a great idea. The symbol is just not as helpful as it could be. And that's why I want to swap it to this. All right? Circle, triangle, square. You guys familiar with the triangle? Yeah, me too. The reason that it's, it's a better idea, I think, for us is that it's more recognizable, it's easier to draw, easier to describe... But it also, it, it also reminds us that the gathered worship that it's meant to present is not mainly about a pulpit or a preacher. It's mainly about Jesus. So this symbol shows us where our focus needs to be. I'm going to spend the rest of our time together talking about what that looks like for us. What does it mean for us to gather on Sunday and have our focus on the risen and reigning Lord Jesus? Now, when we talk about worship, which is what I'm going to do this morning, the triangle represents gathered worship. Of course, it's really important to say that worship is more than Sunday morning singing and preaching and stuff. Worship is more than that. Worship has become sort of synonymous with that, but it's that plus everything else. So the... the, the um, root meaning of the word worship comes from the old English worth-ship. It just means we ascribe worth to something. In the, in the really old version of the, of the uh, marriage ceremony, which I've done once for some people who really loved traditional things, um, the, the, the man says to his wife, and the wife says to the husband, with my body I the worth-ship. It means I, I, with my body, with my, everything that I have, I will give you honour. That's what it means to worship something. And so worship at its heart is about more than just this. It's about making all of life all about Jesus. That's kind of why we like to say what we say about what this church is about. Because it's all-encompassing. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to daily take up your cross. Unless you do that, you can't be my disciple. He's really exclusive like that. Not very PC, right? Like, unless you make all of life all about Jesus, you're not a disciple of mine. Sort of puts to death nominal Christianity in one fell swoop. So yes, worship is about all of life. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. If you want to know what worship is, it's all of life, all about Jesus. It is in view of God's mercy, that is, he gave his son for you. Instead of rubbing you out, he had mercy on you. Jesus died for you. In view of that mercy, give yourself as a living sacrifice. And I can just imagine Paul chuckling to himself like, that's a good line. 
living sacrifice. He loves that kind of that kind of juxtaposition, right? Because sacrifices aren't living, they're dead. That's what a sacrifice is. But he's saying, no, we're not sacrifices that are put to death once off. We are living sacrifices. We daily take up our cross and follow Jesus. So we give ourselves as a living sacrifice, and that is what worship is all about. That's what pleases God. That's what makes a watching world say, maybe God is actually worth my time. Maybe he's more than just about showing up to church once a week or once a month. Maybe he actually is, like for these people, he's their whole life. Maybe there's something to this. So one of the best prayers ever written is one that we say just about every week, and it comes from the the Book of Common Prayer, and this is what we read. Father, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice through Jesus Christ our Lord. Send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. That is beautiful. That is expressing my desire to honor God with my whole life and recognizing that I can't do it without his help. So we offer, this is an act of our will. We want to live, making all of life all about Jesus. So please give us the power of your spirit so that we can do that. Live and work to your praise and glory. I love the way that Edmund Clowney describes it. He gives us this beautiful big vision of Sunday morning, all right? Above all, we must prize the blessing of corporate worship. The church of the Lord gathered for worship marks the pinnacle of our fellowship with the Lord and with one another. The church is the people of God, the new humanity, the beginning of the new creation, a colony of heaven. In corporate worship, we experience the meaning of union with Christ. So what he's saying is, yes, all of life is all about Jesus. Yes, worship is about everything you do from day to day. But the pinnacle of that worship is when we get together, when we gather together as the church when we sing, when we receive the word and the sacraments, that's the pinnacle. That's, that's when we experience a little bit of what heaven is going to be like. It's the pinnacle of that experience. So I love electronic media more than I love printed media because with printed media, you waste all the money you spent when you need to change something online. You just up something different. So on our website, as of Monday, you would have seen this if you went along. You would have seen an update to the pulpit. You would have seen a triangle. And this is all about the gathered church. The point of this is that we ought to set our focus on the glory of Jesus. It's nothing less than that. Our largest and most important gathering is the Sunday worship service during which the word is received and the sacraments are observed. When this ministry is practiced, the focus of the congregation is on the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. And the objective is the stirring of affections for him. There's an upward focus to our gathering on Sunday morning. So I want to talk for the rest of our time about what that means, what that looks like. What needs to be in place for that to be more and more the case for us? You might be sitting here this morning saying, well, that's way beyond my experience of this place so far. Well, yeah, let's take that for granted and let's look forward to something better. My experience of church since I was saved when I was 19 has been one of tension. The disappointment of things not being as they ought to be mixed with the exhilaration of experiencing the glory of God among the people of God. Up until the point when I was saved, my whole church experience, which had been my whole life, was one of utter boredom, just boredom. And I went to a good church. Um, But we had those really hard wooden pews, and I just always remember just heading straight for the back of those, whichever was the closest to the back that I could get. To this day, if you go to St. John's Diamond Creek, there is scratched in the back of some of those wooden pews, just graffiti that I've... I call it art. 
But it was boredom, you know, there wasn't much exhilaration being had in those gatherings. And then God saved me and my whole experience changed, evidenced by the fact that I went from back seat every week to front seat every week. Like any church I ever go to, I'm heading for the front. I want to be as close as I can to what's happening. I, I want to be engaged. I want to have as little distraction as possible. I want to hear the voices of God's people singing God's praises. That's, been, that's happened from the day I was saved. That's just been a thing that I have to do. My whole experience of God and the, and the corporate worship of God has been utterly changed. And here's the thing. This is true to this day. If I miss this, for a month, I start dying. That, that analogy you might have heard before of, you know, the coal when it's in the fire glows brightly, but as soon as you take it out, it starts to turn black. That's me if I'm outside of church. And I confidently say to people that if you stop going to church within at least a couple of years, you probably won't be a Christian. Because this is part of God's economy. This is p- part of the means that God uses to keep us alive spiritually. For some people, it take a couple of years. For me, it takes a few weeks. If I'm disconnected from God's means of grace in the corporate worship of his people. You see, the psalmist, especially David, throughout the book of Psalms, will often be lamenting the fact that he's cut off from the throng, cut off from the people of God, Psalm 42 and, and elsewhere. And so this is a vital part of our discipleship, a vital part of our spiritual life is the gathering of God's people. Now, since I was 19, I've worshipped with heaps of different churches around the world, lots of different types of churches, some big, massive, mega churches with lights and fog machines and right big production and some little house churches where there's not much more than bread and wine and a Bible, right? And and my experience in, across that whole spectrum has sometimes been great, deep, satisfying worship, and sometimes it's been utter emptiness. But the thing that has determined whether it was one or the other wasn't the size or the budget or the building. It was these five things that I want to talk to you about this morning. Okay, So I've got five things that I think should be markers for us and things that we should aim for and, and use really to... Um, to keep us accountable to what I think God is calling us to on a, on a Sunday morning or a, in a gathered worship service, all right? So those five things, focus, depth, clarity, passion, and purpose. And uh, I'm just going to cycle through those. If you're a note taker, then have at it. Number one, focus. Our focus in this corporate gathering must be on the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. If you could see Jesus right now, you would see him in glory, ruling and reigning over all things. He sustains the world by the word of his power. Everything keeps going because he is in charge. Every breath that you take is allowed by him, given to you as a gift. And so if you understand that to be true, that Jesus is not still stuck on the cross, suffering every week, Sunday to Sunday, that he's not being sacrificed on a table, that he's actually ruling and reigning over all things, then that changes the way that you approach worship. It's not merely about remembrance or sacrifice, it's about honour and glory. So Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 43, and he's just speaking God's words. God says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. Gathering is the, is the word for church. Gather you from the west. Verse 6, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Um... Just lost the screen there. It's okay. Um, this has happened a couple of times. We need a new uh, projector. It overheats by the second service. So if you want to give us a few thousand bucks, 
We will not refuse. All right, Isaiah 43. This one I got to the most important part. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Verse 5. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The purpose of our gathering is to glorify Jesus because that's why we were made. The reason you exist is for God's glory. The reason he calls you, right? He's called people in this church from the north and the south and the east and the west, from across the globe. The reason he's called you and gathered you is for his glory. And so our focus has to be on him. If your focus is elsewhere, then you'll never get it. You could come here for years and years and years and still be like, why, why do we do this? You'll miss it. We're going back to Psalm 29. Simon read it for us. But the first couple of verses of Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. That's the definition of worship, right? He is due this amount of glory. And it's not just here, it's all of our lives. It's worth worship. He is worthy of all that we give him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. If we had a right picture of God, every time someone sees God in the Bible, they fall down. Overwhelmed by his majesty. I'm always puzzled by men at football matches. And it's to a degree in like our AFL or rugby culture, but when I went to a, 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 a soccer game in, a, in England, it was a whole other level. Like to have a bunch of otherwise withdrawn, emotionally restrained men who for that 90 minutes stand up and sing and raise their hands and yell and cry and like for them to experience all these things is weird, right? It's weird. It doesn't, it doesn't happen to them any other time, like the birth of their child, right? And then like a totally different thing happens to them. Something, something happens in their bones, in their soul. And I think what happens is They are with a big group of people who are all absorbed by the one thing. And so when you're in a big group of people and you're absorbed by what's going on, all your self-consciousness leaves you. So suddenly you're like crying and praying and, I mean, praising and singing and you're not worried about how ridiculous you look. Like you have these grown men in the middle of winter, overweight, tops off. No inhibitions. This is the point. When we are absorbed by the glory of something, whether it's the glory of a football game or a concert or, you know, whatever works for you, when you're absorbed by it, your self-consciousness melts away and you're free to be able to praise. The problem is, so often we praise things that aren't very praiseworthy and all the while God is in his glory saying, come, come. He wants to satisfy us with living waters. He knows what we're truly aching for. All of us here, right down to the dude who's crying at the football game, all of us are looking to be satisfied with real glory and to be praising something that's truly praiseworthy. And that thing is God. Now, I know that what I'm describing doesn't match your experience. But I think what I'm saying is that if your experience of church is just really shallow and not very satisfying, the problem might be us, 
and the way we're doing things, or the problem might be your focus. Where are your eyes? If they're too much on yourself, you'll never get to that point where you can truly worship God in spirit and in truth. All right, there's where our focus needs to be. And I just want to commend those of you who are here, uh, who have been here since early this morning, those of you who are choosing to serve at one service and then attend another service. The whole reason for that is so that you can give yourself to others and then just give yourself the glory of God. Focus. Second thing is depth. True worship is deep worship. Why? Because God is deeper than anything we can imagine. There's always going to be more. No matter how much you drink from the fountain of living waters, there's always more water there for you to drink. No matter how far you plumb the depths and mine the jewels of the glory of God, there's always going to be more. And so worship, true worship, is deep worship. And if we're doing things right, then there are going to be sermons where you're like, I really need to get to lunch because we just, there's just more that we have to say. Or there's going to be words that are more than three syllables long. Or there's going to be stuff that's hard to understand because God is beyond our understanding. True worship is deep worship. Jesus wanted to lift our minds out of this mindset that was just surface worship. It was just about time and place and form. He wanted to go beyond form to substance. So remember he had this conversation with a Samaritan woman. And she was saying, you know, well, you Jews believe you should worship there and we believe you should worship here, right? It was all about form, building, architecture, outward stuff. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It has been all about that up until now. But from now on, it's about spirit and truth, right? So this is what he says to that woman, John chapter 4, John 4. This is like the olden days. John 4, 23 to 24. Jesus says to the woman, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. True worship is deep worship. So I want you to make it your expectation. Everyone look right at me. I'm losing you. All right. I want you to make it your expectation. Nothing less than when you show up here on a Sunday, you expect to go deep into the glory and majesty of God. That if you leave here, having had a shallow experience, you should be angry. You should write us a strongly worded letter. Because either you're distracted, or we haven't led you well. Every week... God is inviting us into the depths of his sufficiency. What we're looking for every week is a wonderful experience. You know where we get that word from? Something wonderful is not just something enjoyable. It's something overwhelming. It's something that grabs us and elicits something out of us. It's something that stirs us up. That's, that's what wonderful means. <clears throat> In the 19th century, there was a guy named Gilbert Kenneth Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton. He's a Roman Catholic author, prolific journalist and author. And uh, he had a great way with words. And he was lamenting that in his generation, he saw this departure from 
a traditional way of understanding the world where God is on the throne and everything is a gift to uh, a humanistic, secularist perspective where all that exists is what we can interpret through our five senses. And he said that guts our experience. It squeezes the wonder out of what it means to be human. And he says what we need to be is less like <clears throat> scientists who boil everything down to sensate experiences, and he says we need to be more like children who think behind every door there could be a dragon. Right? We need to have that kind of expectation and wonder. And so he says um, we are perishing not for lack of wonders but for lack of wonder. He says there's no lack of things that should cause you to be overwhelmed. There's just a lack of our tapping into it. We've turned off the stream of wonder that is constantly pouring forth from God. So to go deep into worship means to come expecting to be swept up in the wonder of worship. The wonder of the glory of God. There's focus. There needs to be focus. There needs to be depth. You can have all the depth in the world and it's going to be a complete waste of your time if there isn't clarity. Depth and clarity. We could construct the most profound experience of God's glory that you've ever had and do it all in Latin and it would be a complete waste of your time. So along with the depth, there needs to be clarity. And this is, some, this is a personal, real high value for me. I hope that the preaching is like this. I hope that the liturgy is like this. We want it to be deep and clear. I've been diving only a couple of times in my life because it freaks me out. Just being in water that's deep freaks me out a bit. I don't know what it is. Even I can remember as a kid, we had a pool at our house. We'd spend all our lives in there. But I would often think, if I dive into this pool, a shark will eat me. And that's, I'm not joking. That, I literally thought that. I, and the thing that always came to mind was like, stranger things have happened. Which I'm not sure is true, actually. But I just have this fear. And I've only been diving a couple of times, but once was in a lake... And it freaked me out. It was terrifying because it was deep and cold and murky. Like you could only see a meter in front of you. And the other was in Thailand and it was amazing. It was deep and clear, crystal clear. And I'll read. And what we want this experience to be for you is both deep and clear. We want it to be that beautiful experience of seeing the, the depth of the glory of God and being able to understand it. Without understanding, there's no edification. There's no building up of faith. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, you know, he's talking to the church and in Corinth they're having all these issues because uh, they're really into the, to the kind of um, into uh, sign gifts and they're really into miracles and prophecy and tongues. And, um, and so he's talking to them and he's like, those things are good. He doesn't throw them out. Those things are good gifts from God. But he says, I would rather utter, utter five discernible, understandable words than speak in tongues the rest of my life. Now, again, I need to stress, he's not throwing out those gifts. He loves them. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But he says, if things aren't discernible, if they're not understandable, then there is no edification. Then there is no, um, then there is no benefit. And so he says in verse 33 of chapter 14, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. So yes, we want depth, but we also want clarity. Clarity of the message and also clarity of purpose, which we'll get to in just a minute. So focus, 
depth, clarity, and passion. They say that um, nine out of ten pastors will not retire as pastors. So that means out of every ten pastors, nine of them quit being a pastor before they finish their working life. And uh, if that happens to me, if I just leave and go and become a model, obviously... um, (laughs) then it might be because of the experience I've had every so often where the gathering of God's people here is dry, where it's just mumbling and yawning. But as soon as we get out to the foyer, it's excited and vivacious and laughter. And that will probably do for me in the end. Because what we see in that moment is revealed the fact that we've just obviously missed it. If talking about what you did on Saturday night is more exciting and exhilarating and stirs up more affection in you than singing nothing but the blood of Jesus, then we've missed it. If you can stand up and you've missed it. Passion. Passion is a natural byproduct of seeing God for who he truly is. Now, I know that we have different personalities here, and I get that for many of us, you know, it takes a lot for me to get worked up about anything. I'm pretty laid back kind of guy, and some of you are like that. But what I've witnessed in this place, is that even the most effusive of us can be dampened in this room. I was chatting with people after the service today and they were like, man, I hope we do what you just said because we really love to clap and dance and that kind of thing when we're singing. And I was like, and why didn't you today? And they, were like, they were like, well, it's just, you know, kind of look around and Everyone's kind of not really into it. And... So I get that it's a prevailing culture kind of thing and that if half of us just started doing it, the rest of us would probably do it as well and there'd be three of us who don't because we're never going to do it and that's okay. I get that there is something about being an Anglican church which means we've inherited Victorian English restraint. Stiff upper lip, never get too upset, never get too excited, just somewhere in the middle. Anglicanism has always been somewhere in the middle. But, you know, sometimes the middle just means lukewarm. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So if we come along to this gathering, this triangle... And our treasure truly is the personal work of Jesus and what he's done on our behalf, the fact that we're saved by nothing but his blood. If we treasure that, if we delight in that, then our heart can't be unmoved. It can't be. That's the way God's wired us. Where there is true gratitude, there should be true affections. And so one of the most damning indictments of a church in the scriptures is in Revelation chapter 2. Jimmy's spoken on this. He did a whole series on this before. Jesus is talking to the churches and he, he speaks to the church in Ephesus. And I find this very convicting and very appropriate for our church. So just listen to this. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and perseverance. 
I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. What a commendation. Perseverance. Commitment to truth. Rejection of error. I resonate with that. That's what I want to be. I want us to be like that church. In the midst of a, of a context in society and in the church which is going crazy, we stand firm. We keep our eyes in the book. We keep walking in the spirit. We have a closed hand on the gospel and we will not be moved. He says, yes, good job. Verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you first had. See this in marriages, right? We've been married for 60 years, never been in an affair, together till death do us part. I just don't like her very much anymore. Commitment, solidity, but no love. And Jesus says, it's not enough. It's not enough for your marriage. It's not enough for the church. It's not enough to be strong in doctrine and hard in affection. We need to be strong and soft. And so when you come here, you ought to find yourself being stirred up. Now, you can do this a couple of ways, right? There is an easy way to do this. There is a formula for it. It's very scientific. Easily reproduced if you have the budget for it. You just get the right lighting, the right amount of fog in the fog machine, the right tempo in the music, turn the lights down, and you can get it that way. It's just not real. It's just not satisfying. But you can do it that way. And we could do it that way. I feel like we could go either way on this. Um, We could go that route. Or we could get a vision for God's glory. Jesus seated at the right hand of God in majesty. And then allow ourselves, no, more than that, Commit ourselves to experiencing love and joy and wonder. Worship ought to be passionate. And passion goes beyond just having a good time. Passion actually means suffering. That's why old school people will say that the the passion of Jesus is his death, right? Passion is suffering. It's experiencing something acutely. It's not jumping up and down for a while and then having to come back next week because there's no lasting effect. It's deep affection for something greater than ourselves or something greater than good music. Luther, Martin Luther, just echoes my own experience. He says, I keep referring to that screen. He says, when I'm at home, I experience very little affection. But when I'm gathered with the people of God, there is a fire lit in me that breaks through the monotony paraphrase. That's my experience. To be honest, the quiet times I have in God's word and prayer are important, really important. Like, as important as an umbilical cord is to a baby, important. But it's only in the gathered people of God that a real fire is lit that breaks through the monotony or the dryness or the sludge that's in my heart. Focus, depth, clarity, passion. And I've got a couple of minutes left to talk about purpose. 
we don't do a lot of meetings in our church because me and Jimmy are the only ones on staff and we don't like doing them. So just don't do them very much. But I've worked for organizations before where there are lots of meetings and where the majority of them were purposeless and it was a train wreck. Have you ever been to a meeting and everyone's looking around at each other going, why are we here? It's the same with the meeting of God's people. You can have a triangle that is purposeless. And so when we come here on Sunday morning, we need to know the purpose for our gathering. I'm going to write a book one day. It's going to be called Going to Church on Purpose. Because anything you do with a rhythm, whether it's breakfast or work or whatever, anything you do regularly can become monotonous, can become autopilot. And so God forbid that if what we've been talking about is true, that we would damn it with monotony. It would be better never to go to church again than to damn church with monotony, with nominalism. There is a purpose for our gathering together, and it's all the things we've said, and it's sort of encapsulated by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Turn with me. Do you ever, does it ever strike you how much you've become a product of the age when turning pages is a bit weird? I want to do this, not scrolling. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you, right? That's called a purpose clause. You are all of those things so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He says, if you're a Christian, then you you know what it's like. You know what it was like in the darkness. You know how hopeless it was, monotonous it was. But you know now what it's like to be a child of light. To be shown God's mercy, to be invited in, to be to to have gone from this individual with with not much to live for. Now you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now you are God's special possession. And he says, if you know that, then your whole purpose for being is to declare his praises. That's why you're alive. If God lets you wake up tomorrow morning instead of killing you in your sleep, that's why he's done it. You might have a few things on your to-do list, but none is more important than that one. To declare his praises. Now, the thing that we need to get, and this is, honestly, this is the last thing I'll say. We have to know that this won't happen automatically. If we manipulate you, it will happen automatically. You don't have to have any say in it. Okay, We'll make it happen. But for the genuine thing to happen requires an act of your will. It requires you, when you turn up here in the morning in the car park and... As you turn into the driveway, you're yelling at your wife and trying to hit your kids, right? It requires you, maybe it's the car park for you, maybe it's, I don't know, whatever it is, you need a trigger that tells you, yes, I know all of life's meant to be all about Jesus, but it hasn't been this morning. Now, we are going to turn our wills towards the living God. We're going to make an active decision to see him in his glory. Now, if you do that often enough on a Sunday morning, you're going to start seeing it spread through your life. You really will. But the purpose of our gathering is to be a triangle. It is to be orientated up, to see God in his glory, and that requires you to do something. 
So Graham Kendrick says, uh, says there's this, there's this misunderstanding that worship is something that happens to you. It comes upon you in the midst of a service. He says it's not like that. He says it's an active decision of the will to obey and to worship the Lord Jesus. So it might be, if you've never experienced the kind of thing I've been banging on about, it might be that you've never just said to yourself, I'm in. I want this. Lord, I don't know what this means. Lord, I'm afraid it might mean I do this or, or this. Don't do that. Or like falling on my face, or it might mean I cry. I don't know what it'll mean, but I want you to lead me into it. Fill me with your spirit. Lead me into true worship. Worship in spirit and in truth. If we're going to be the kind of church all of us honestly want us to be, we're going to be the kind of church that puts effort and resources into the triangle, then it means we need to be conscious of these things. It means we need to increase in focus and depth and clarity and passion and purpose. And all of that is the product of God's gracious gifts. So I'm going to pray for us now that he would give them to us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need you so much. Lord, I believe that you want to give us good gifts as we gather together. You want to do so much more in us than we've ever experienced. You want us to drink more deeply than we've ever drunk before. You want us to experience more passion and suffering and elation and joy than we've ever experienced before. You're a good father. And you've promised us if we ask for bread, you won't give us a stone. If we ask for fish, you won't give us a snake. We delight to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask you. So I pray now, Lord, give us your spirit. Fill us with your spirit. Guide us. We have imperfect leadership. We make mistakes with symbols. Lord, we don't have smoke machines. We need you. You are our senior pastor. Please lead us. Help us as we gather in this triangle space. I pray that you would Enable us to make that act of the will. To worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you've been doing in this gathering. And we look with great anticipation to all you're going to do. To your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.